The uh, children are dismissed for children's church. So if you're in that age group up through, I believe it's grade four, you can find your teachers out there, the rest of us. Uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we are at a point where we are at a, a really the climax of John. Um, one of the things that I noticed when reading this section of scripture, again, John chapter 20, we're going to actually read through verses 23. We're really going to focus on maybe the first 18, but, um, but I want to give some context for where we are. Uh, last week, when we were finishing up John chapter 19, we were noticing this, that Jesus has said, it is finished. What is finished? We see that the power of sin and death, it is finished. That Jesus is saying, the work that my Father has given me to do, I have completed, I have finished that work. And again, when we think about John chapter um, 20, we won't get there this week, but the purpose of the book in, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it's, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And in the midst of this particular chapter, in, in John chapter 20, what we find is that we really find John coming to faith, as it were, in Jesus, in believing with his whole heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, in between... Uh, 19, chapter 19 and chapter 20, we find this, like the, the burial of Jesus happens in, in 19 verses 38 through 42. And so Jesus is buried in a new tomb. Um, we, we find that then there is this darkness or at least this uncertainty and certainly the sadness that occurs because all of Jesus' followers at this point think that Jesus has been defeated that what Jesus was doing has now been usurped by the Roman government, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And it's similar um, because they, they don't know the good news yet. And so there's, there's a fog that's lifted in um, or settled in, I guess, over the believers. There's great love, there's great affection, but there's great sadness, there's great mourning that's going on. It, it's similar to, um, if we think about... Um, many, many hundreds of years ago when, when the English were fighting uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. And there's this thing called the, the Battle of Waterloo where the Duke of Wellington actually defeated Napoleon Bonaparte. And when he defeated Napoleon Bonaparte, nobody thought he was gonna be able to do, to do it. Everybody thought Napoleon was just gonna continue to, to rule and reign and expand his empire. And in the midst of you know, uh, the Duke of Wellington actually securing a victory over Napoleon. There was a British admiral in the English Channel. And, and the way that they would communicate was this uh, system called the semaphore. And the semaphore was either flags or a light. And I'm not sure exactly whether it was flags or light. But in the midst of trying to translate the message from the coast of the, of the continent, from Waterloo to England, and let them know that the Duke of Wellington had won and had defeated Bonaparte, they began to use this system, this semaphore system of signs. Uh, and when they got to the point, it, it read like this, Wellington defeated and at which point, then the fog settled in so they couldn't actually read the signs, the rest of the sign. So for about six hours, all that England thought, because again, there was no telegraph, there was no, tele, no telephone, Twitter hadn't been invented yet, or X, I'm sorry. All of those things weren't around. And so all they got in the midst of the semaphore system was that Wellington defeated. 
And then about six hours later, the fog lifted and the semaphore system was able to, to continue the message, which is Wellington defeated the enemy. Now in the midst of this, that's what we find ourselves in in this particular passage. Because when, when Mary shows up, when the disciples show up, they are in the fog of war, as it were. Certainly in despair, certainly very, very despondent about all that Jesus had done and that now he was dead. But what we find um, is this. So having said that, let's read John chapter 20, verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not, not, we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what it was, she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, this is where we are. We find that somewhere between chapter 19 and chapter 20, we see that Jesus actually conquers death. Because when Jesus is actually telling us in John chapter 19 that it is finished, And again, in verse 30, when he says, tetelestai, he is saying that it is paid in full. We talked about that last week, that this Greek word tetelestai means paid in full, that what I have come to accomplish, I have done, and I have conquered sin and death. Now, when Jesus is saying that it is finished, he's essentially saying, I'm done. 
I've done everything. And what the resurrection proves is it authenticates. It is the, the sealing whereby we know that what Jesus said when he said it is finished, when all of the sin of all of those who would believe upon Jesus was poured out upon Jesus and he exhausted the wrath of God Uh, making himself an atoning sacrifice or a propitiation for our sins, when he says it is finished, we know that it is true and valid based upon the resurrection. You see, the resurrection attests to and testifies to the fact that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. And in a similar way, um, maybe not everybody, but have you ever been um, in, in college or in high school or junior high or whatever it was, and you had a test, and you know that when you uh, finish that test that you completely aced the test? Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> there are a few gifted individuals that understand exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Now, in, in the midst of that, you know that you had gotten every problem right, you had done everything correctly, but you do not know that you had aced the test yet until you get your grade back. When you get your grade back, then you know, yes, I have aced this test. In a sense, in a very uh, you know, metaphor that is, that is wrong, and I, I apologize, Jesus aced the test And what we find is that it's validated through the resurrection. Now, when we think about him conquering sin and death, we think about it in this way. In Colossians chapter two, the apostle Paul says this, and he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's what he did on the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then through the resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them them in him. You see, when Jesus is resurrected, he is destroying death. So for a believer... For a believer, we do not fear death. As a matter of fact, if we are in faith, if we love Jesus, the promise of Jesus is that once we die, our our souls will immediately go to be with Jesus, awaiting the day when we will get our resurrection bodies. And so there's this joy that actually comes from dying if you're a believer. And that is something that is only possible because Jesus vanquished sin and death. In a similar way, there's a, in, in 2005, there's a, there a story of, um, of a man in, um, in Kenya. And this man was 73 years old um, and he was a peasant farmer. His name was Daniel Imburugugu. Uh, I'm gonna call him Daniel um, just so that I can move on. But uh, Daniel was 73 years old and he was tending to his potato and bean crops in a rural area near Mount Kenya when a leopard charged and actually jumped on top of him. And so this Daniel had a machete in one hand, but he dropped it 
And as the leopard uh, was you know, scraping and, and jawing at his mouth, what he did was the only thing, and he, was, he said, it was almost like a voice told me to reach inside the leopard. So this 73-year-old peasant farmer in Kenya who had just dropped his machete and who's being ravaged by a leopard takes his hand and he reaches inside the leopard and grabs the tongue of the leopard and rips it out, thereby killing the leopard. And he said at that time when he pulled the tongue out, there was such a, 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 a screech that occurred by the leopard that he actually, all the birds stopped chirping. And then uh, a neighbor came and actually you know, put the, the leopard out of its misery. And then it, it says, this is a Reuters story, that the, um, the local hospital actually gave him free care because of all that had happened to him. Isn't that nice of them? That they would give him free hospital care based upon what he had. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus went into death and ripped its life out so that we could live. That's what Jesus did for us. He conquered and vanquished death so that we might live. Now, nobody in the story gets that yet. They're not, they're not there. So on, in, in chapter one, here's what we find. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now we know in other gospel accounts that she was not the only woman that came. I think actually John makes it clear that he actually says this is before dawn. So we're still in the darkness. We're still in the darkness and the fog of not knowing what has happened to Jesus. And, w- and what we find is that you know, when, when they notice that the stone is rolled away, that she ran and told Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, this is um, really, really interesting because she tells Simon Peter and the other, disciple, the other disciple, and when John is speaking about the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, he's always referring to himself. Uh, and we're almost positive that it talks about, um, this is, um, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together but the other disciple outran Peter. Now, I have no idea why that is in the story. But John seems to say it again in, in verse eight. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So there's something significant about John being faster than Peter that I can't figure out why, and no commentator knows why John is saying, in writing this, and saying, I was faster than Peter. I don't know if he just held it over Peter's head his entire life. Um, I, some, some commentators have said, well, it's because Peter was much older. And so, you know, when you get older, you don't get faster, you get slower. Uh, it could be that Peter was married. And some people have said, well, Peter was married, and so he was married, so he couldn't go as fast, and all these other things. We're not really sure. Um, but we find that but both of these disciples, after they have... Um, run to the tomb, notice what happens. Um, so so they, had taken, um, they had taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So, so Mary Magdalene at this point thinks that somebody has stolen the body. Somebody has removed the body. She doesn't understand this yet. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Uh, and when they both got there, um, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And they stooped, and, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So this is John. The, the tomb, this huge stone has been moved apart, and John stoops in and he looks in to see what's going on. 
And, and there's three different Greek words that happen here with regard to seeing uh, and observing. And initially, this, this first Greek word that we see is this word blepo. Um, now, this word blepo um, just means that you actually visibly see it. Um, that's what it just implies. It's a very simple term that, that he stooped in and he looked and he saw something. That his eyes actually registered the fact that the tomb was empty, but that there were linen cloths there. Now, Peter, because Peter's always headstrong and Peter will always be the one who, um, who will go first. Then Peter, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw, now that's a different word. Like as John is using the term blepo to saying that I see it, Simon Peter, he saw, um, and, the, and the, the Greek word for that is theoreo, where we actually get this term theory. So when you see something and you begin to have a theory around this must be what happened, the theory behind why these linen claws are there, how has this happened? So there's this, you go from blepo to where you see something to theoreo, which is now you're theorizing about what is going on. So Simon Peter is making up a theory in his head. So imagine, again, you're Simon Peter. You have um, denied Jesus three times. You've now had the Passover, probably the worst Passover meal that Simon Peter has ever had, ever. You know, living in depression and despair. And now the the, the linen cloths that were you know, fixed with 75 pounds of spice and myrrh and aloe are sitting there. And what we find is in this, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, now that Greek word and, and what it's saying there is actually saying that they were actually in order. Like, not meaning that they were just flung around, but that the, Greek, that, that the cloths were lying there. It's, it's similar to, like, I don't know if you've ever had... Um, uh, teenage uh, children, uh, some of which are very clean, some of which are not, and you go into your, your, their room and sometimes you might find that their clothes are all over the, 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 ha- the room, right? Sometimes that might happen. I mean, some, some of you are like, well, that's not my teenager, that's me, that's just kind of what I do. Uh, that's my system of organization. Um, but then you go into other rooms and you'll notice that everything is put away in the drawers, right? The drawers and the closet, everything's hung up and everything's in order. And what we find is that the, the cloths that are lying there, they are not in disorder, but rather they are in order. And so what is happening here is that now, um, then Simon Peter following came, following him and went into the tomb. He saw, so Peter's theorizing, how, what is going on with the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw. And that third Greek word for saw is this word horao, horao, and he believed. And and there's this idea um, in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. But in verse 8, I want you to see this. Like this is the, the, the Apostle John saying, now for the first time, I understand and I believe and trust in Jesus. We find that everything that he's writing about in the Gospel of John is leading up to this point where he says, and now I, I saw... And that, that idea of saw, that horao, is actually like not just you see, but you also see and perceive. You don't just view it, 
but you see and have a perception about it. And then attached to it is this idea, I saw and believed. This, this other word called pistuo, that I, I saw and believed and trusted in Jesus. I understood everything, well, not completely yet, but I began to just put my full trust in Jesus. And they would say, because the resurrection happened, I now believe. But in verse nine, it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So there's, there's still some uncertainty, but in verse eight, it is the first place where John says, now I get it, that Jesus has been raised to life. Now, in the midst of this, I want you to think about Mary in verse um, chapter 20, verse 11. It's this idea of the, the calling of Mary. Well, well, who is Mary Magdalene? Well, Mary Magdalene, in, in Luke chapter eight, verses two and three, um, here's what we read about, and we know uh, about this about Mary Magdalene. And also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have, had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here's what we know about Mary. We know that Mary was a woman who had seven demons who had gone out of her through the ministry of Jesus. That there was infirmity, there was, there was demon possession, all of these things that were happening, and Jesus lifted the oppression from her. Now from church history, um, I, Biblically, I can't say this is for sure, but throughout the age of the church, we've been told that the woman in Luke chapter seven, who actually anointed Jesus' feet with her hair, was also uh, Mary Magdalene. Throughout uh, church history, that's what we have uh, been told. Uh, and certainly at the end of that particular passage, it says, and when Jesus says, he, whom has, or he who has been forgiven much loves much. All right, we see that. So Mary Magdalene, one of the, one of the women woman who was providing for Jesus, you know, provided for them out of their means, out of their money. Uh, we also know that in John chapter 19, verse 25, that she was at the crucifixion, that she actually witnessed everything that happened to Jesus while he was on the cross. So this is a woman who has a deep affection and a deep love for Jesus. And what's sad about this um, is that we find her weeping by the tomb of Jesus. So if, if we were to um, construct the story based upon the other gospels, we find that Mary Magdalene and probably several other women based upon the other gospel accounts went to the tomb. And when the stone was rolled away, they sent Mary Magdalene to go find the disciples. Now, while she's away, angels, and this is not in John, but it's in the other gospel accounts, angels appear to those women, uh, and then they leave. So now, Mary Magdalene is looking for Peter and John, and she finds them, and, and they begin to run towards the tomb. And what happens is, Mary Magdalene gets left in the dust, you know, when the disciples depart and they run. So now, by the time Mary Magdalene is trailing the disciples, the disciples, you'll notice, in verse um, 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, now Mary is by herself, and she stood weeping 
outside the tomb of Jesus. And again, who is Mary? She's a woman whose life has been radically changed by Jesus. She's a woman who is filled with affection to the point where she gives of her own means to make sure that the disciples and Jesus are taken care of. She's a woman who is at the crucifixion. She's a woman who's been a part of the, the entourage of Jesus. And she stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she stood, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, now this is interesting because you know, she sees two angels, but I don't know if she understands that they're angels because she's weeping, she's, she's grief-ridden. And she says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now again, this is the first person that John records that Jesus actually appears to. And now this is um, incredible on its own because if you're trying to write a book uh, and trying to make your book credible, um, you would certainly not have Jesus appearing to his first person as a woman, Mary Magdalene, who had a demon possession that was taken out of her. But John is writing what is true and John is writing what, what he knows to be true. Um, and he, and he, we, we read this and Jesus said to her in verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Let me just pause there um, with this, is that notice that because Mary is, loves Jesus, she moves towards him. And as a matter of fact, think about this. This is a woman who is saying, just tell me if you've taken him, tell me where his body is and I will go pick it up. I will pick up this dead man's body with all of the, 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 the linen, you know, whatever it is, I will pick it up and I will take him. She's, she's basically making a promise that I'm not really sure she can keep at this point. But she does it out of love. She does that out of great affection for the Lord. And in the midst of this great love, and again, you know, one of the applications for us is this, is that love always moves towards. We see this. If you love someone, you will move towards them. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, we will always move towards the ones we love. Think about that. Or at least we should move towards them. And what we find is that Jesus um, has this calling upon Mary. She says, Jesus said to her, Mary. And it was, you know, he, he had initially said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So he had spoken her before, but then we, when he, when Jesus uses her name, Mary, she turns and she recognizes him. And she says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, as we think about this, the story in John 20 is a story about death and resurrection, calling, love, belief. But isn't that also the story of all of us? How we encounter Jesus, how we hear the Savior call us to himself, how our own 
faith is similar to that when we, when we blepo or we, we see the things of Jesus and we might observe it. And then we move from maybe witnessing or seeing it to this idea of having this site of um, theoreo, which is theorizing about why this happened or how this happened. And then we, we hopefully will move to a place of um, um, just trusting and believing and seeing and believing. But what really does it, what really does it for us is when the call of Jesus is placed upon us, meaning when he calls out and he says, Mary. Or he calls out and he says, George. I'm not talking about an audible voice here. But what I am talking about is the call of the gospel in our lives. And we see that occurring within the lives of, we've seen this happen within our own lives, certainly. Those of us who have come and trusted and believed in Jesus. But we also see that in the life of other people. Is that when Jesus begins to call there's this understanding and then there's this, this yearning to be near him. That's the, called the gospel call in the life of a believer. Let me give you um, an example of that. You're just in my own life is you know, having grown up in the church you know, from, from an early age, probably from the age of five or six, um, really, and then you know, sort of having a, what I would call sort of a foot in both worlds. You know, in, in the world, but also in the church, um, it wasn't until college that, that I really began to understand what the gospel was and, and really began to recognize um, that the gospel and Jesus is not meant to be an add-on to my life. And what, what I mean by that is I think that we have a lot of add-ons in our life. Um, uh, like when you go through a, a Chick-fil-A, for example, um, or you know, Wendy's or McDonald's or whatever it is, and you might supersize that meal, right? You're getting a bigger drink, bigger fries, you know, and whatever you're getting, right? Like, I think that my view of Jesus was that he was extra in the midst of my life. And in a similar way, you know, when you think about a car model, there's like you have the base model, you have the mid-level model, the luxury, the super luxury, the platinum, blah, 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 Right? And, and I think my perspective was, is that Jesus was one of the extras in my life. But in college, you know, getting involved in a campus ministry, understanding the gospel, and really the call of Jesus in my life, I began to think, Jesus is not extra. He's not supersizing my life, as it were. But he's calling me to make him everything. And I need to love Jesus because if I love Jesus, um, if, if I love Jesus, then quite frankly, um, all the joys of my life will become much greater. Now, now I want you to think about this, though. I, I might have misspoke there for a second uh, in this way, is that the call of, of Jesus in your life, the call is one of discipleship. The one is to give up everything for Jesus because we know that only in Christ are we forgiven and loved and reconciled and adopted into the family of God. It is only through the finished work of Christ that we are afforded relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And it was understanding that, it was understanding that 
in the midst of you know probably my my first and probably in between my first and second year of college, that I went like, this is the call of God in my life. That I would bend my knee and profess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. In a similar way, in John chapter 20, when Jesus looks at Mary and he says to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, teacher. And he says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now notice, here's what happens. You know, Jesus calls Mary to himself. Jesus expresses, you know, Mary expresses her love for Jesus, her faith in Jesus. And this is what happens in the midst of all of our lives. This is it. Okay. So when you are called by God and you are loved by God, then he commissions you and gives you a job to do. This is what he does. We see this actually happening in Mary Magdalene's life when she says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So then Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and he has said these things to her. There's this um, commissioning that occurs in the life of believers. And here's what, what happens with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is so overwhelmed with joy that, the, that Jesus is alive and not dead, and that, that now she's like, I have to tell other people about him. I can't help but tell other people about this good news. In a similar way, when we think about the good news of, of a little boy or a little girl being born to a family, um, when that little boy or little girl is born, we can't help but express the joy that we have because we want to tell other people. We want to tell those around us. Like if you are a new mom or a new dad, you're so excited. Or if you're a new grandparent, you're so excited to tell other people. And in a similar way, Mary Magdalene is saying this, we want to tell the story of new birth, of regeneration, of salvation in Christ to everyone. And she, she wants to go to the disciples and she can't wait but tell the disciples, this is what um, I, I have seen the Lord in verse 18 and that he has said these things to her. Now, when we think about that, that there should be so much love that we have for Jesus and what he has done for us that we cannot help but tell others. Again, you will commend what you cherish. Another way of saying that is what you love is what you talk about. You see that, right? We see that all over our lives. Non-Christians, Christians, whoever it is, what you love is what you talk about. And what Mary loves is she loves Jesus. Now, think about the, the commissioning now of the apostles, because not only is Mary commissioned, but in chapter nine, verse 19 of chapter 20, she says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, now, uh, we're not, I'm not going to get into like how Jesus goes in between doors and everything else, but he says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus... Um, Jesus 
said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is after he has you know, revealed himself to them, he is saying, as I have come, now I am sending you out so that other people might know the truth. Now, now why is that important for us? We have a lot of people in our lives who are anxious um, or angry or frustrated or lost. I mean, we see that, right? We, we see all of that around us all the time. And you know, what we have received from the Lord is the good news of the gospel. And in Christ, we see that he can put together what men and women cannot put back together. He can heal the brokenhearted. He can restore the broken relationships. He brings forgiveness where there is only shame and frustration. We see this. And yet we have the gospel call in our lives to go out and to share this message. And, and here's the deal. Like, I'm just as guilty of, of struggling with this. Like, if I asked everybody, like, raise your hand if you struggle to tell other people about Jesus. I would hope that unless you're, you know, crippled being a Presbyterian, that we would get all of our hands up in the air, okay? Right? I mean, we struggle with this. And yet, what, what the call and the commissioning is like, you have this wonderful message of love to send forth and to go out into the world to share. There's stories of, of missionaries um, who go to unreached people groups, especially um, uh, your tribal in, in Africa or South America or, or the, the West Indies. And when they show up um, and they begin to tell the message of Jesus and the people believe and embrace the message of Jesus, um, they ask this question, when did this happen? <laughs> When did Jesus rise from the dead? When did Jesus conquer sin and death? When did this happen? And sometimes the missionary will, will say, it happened 1,800 years ago. And the, and the tribe will say, why did it take you so long to tell me? Why did it take you 1,800 years to get to me, to share this message, to share the hope of Christ with me? You see, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I don't want you to share your faith out of, out of any kind of shame or, or, or commandment, but I want you to share your faith because of the love that Jesus has given you and shown you. I want us to be motivated by the love and affection of the Father to take the message of Jesus to those who do not know so that they might experience the love and the grace and the forgiveness that we have experienced. In um, let me conclude with um. There's a there's a song um, by um, Horatius Bonar, who was a, a Scottish Presbyterian in um, the early 1800s, and it's this song of um. I heard the voice of Jesus say. Let me let me just read this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. I found him a resting place, and he has made me glad. 
I heard the voice of Jesus say, behold, I freely give the living water, the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. And the last verse is this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life, I'll walk till traveling days are done. That is the voice of Jesus. That is the call of God upon our life. Come to me, you who are weary. Come to me, you who are thirsty. Come to me, those who are living in darkness, and I will show you the light. I will allow you to drink freely of the streams of salvation, and I will give you rest for your weary souls. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus. And we want to invite other people into that life-giving, that life-giving relationship with him. When we think about communion, we think about it in this way, that on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Now again, Jesus' body was freely given to us His death on the cross was something that he did for us. No person, no man, no Roman, no Sadducee, no Pharisee could bring him, but rather he gave up his life so that we might live. And his body was given for us. And this cup represents the new covenant in his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And throughout the Old Testament law, we find that blood is shed for atoning um, for sins. You see, Jesus, when he died... He was making atonement for our sins. The good news of Christ is that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. And how do we know that we are forgiven? And and how do we know that all of this is true? How do we know? How do we know? It's because the tomb is empty and Jesus has risen. So there was, um, in the 1950s uh, in communist Russia, there was a, Um, an Orthodox priest and and, and a communist scholar said, I'm going to disprove the resurrection. I'm going to disprove the resurrection to all of this village. It was a small village outside a major city and it was an older Orthodox priest. And this communist scholar got up and he gave all the reasons why the resurrection could not be true. And he went on for probably 30 minutes. And at the end of his conclusion, he looked um, smugly at the Orthodox priest and basically said, I'm going to give you a chance. Why don't you have to say what you want to say? And this Orthodox priest who had been ministering to this people for a long, long time and knew all of them, he gets up into the, um, the, the box or the, the pulpit. And here's what he says. He says uh, from the Orthodox liturgy, he goes, the Lord has risen. And the people responded, he is risen indeed. At which point he sat down and the communists left. The reason that we can come to this table, the reason that this is real, the reason that, that Jesus aced the test and that it is finished is true is because the tomb is empty. Now, brothers and sisters, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. If you do not know Jesus today, 
but you hear the calling of the Lord upon your life, then I would ask that you would respond in faith and repentance. If you don't know who Jesus is, uh, we would ask that you would not partake of this meal, but rather you would find an elder up front and you would come to him and say, help me to understand who Jesus is. I feel this calling in my life that he is calling me to himself. Help me to understand and we will pray for you. But if you have trusted and believed in Jesus and not just seen, not only theorized, but you believe in your heart, then this table is for you. Um, Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that you would set aside these elements from their common use. Father, this will always be bread. This will always be juice. But Father, you, you proclaim to us that you show up spiritually. You show up in a way that you nourish our faith. You build us up. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come, we would come expectant with great joy, knowing that we have been saved, that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So Father, as we come, Father, may you strengthen our faith and build us up. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.